This is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, back on the show, uh, Francis Bennett. Uh, Francis was a uh, Roman Catholic Trappist monk uh, for a number of years and then uh, left the monastery to uh, teach on her own and uh, offers a number of courses and uh, uh, enlightens people about spirituality from, uh, I think, uh, a very Christian perspective. She's back on the show. Uh, we've had her on once before. And uh, her, her area that she uh, teaches in now, and she'll explain this to us uh, during the interview, is, uh, would be considered full circle, I think is the term that's used. Thank you so very much, Francis, for taking the time to come back on the show with us. Okay, thanks for having me. Uh, we should be clear to for people listening in that um, when we had Francis on a year and a half ago, uh, the picture is very different from the picture <laughs> on on the website now. Um, Francis, uh, then we refer to as he, and we now are referring to as she because she um, had as transgender. Um, and why don't we just open with that, Francis? You've been teaching uh, non-dual teachings for, for a while, and um, there's a very interesting little intersection that we were so eager to have you on since you transitioned because of the whole question of identity and what we identify with and who we really are. And um, I know that um, a non-dual teacher like you who then took the trouble to transgender um, was met with some consternation. <laughs> and, and so maybe you can tell us, you know, sort of the history of, of, of that and why you made the decision you did. Well, I've always known I was transgender from the time, from as long as I can remember, really. I mean, from about the age of three, I told my mom one day that I was puzzled why people didn't recognize that I was a girl. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, it was very clear to me uh, what my gender identity was. And I think it is very clear to children and more and more children's gender identities are being recognized earlier. Uh, people are more open to that possibility. And parents are listening more closely to their children's experience and then uh, basing how they respond to their child's experience of gender identity uh, on, on that, you know, rather than on what gender they were assigned at birth. Um, in my particular situation, I was really... Um, I guess, technically speaking, you could say I was intersexed because I didn't have normal male chromosomes, still don't. And um, I didn't realize that until probably about four years ago, I discovered it. And um, that made a lot of sense to me because suddenly I realized, oh, that maybe explains part of the reason why I've always felt identified as female. Um, in elementary school, I got picked on pretty mercilessly. Uh, if you had met me before the age of 12 or 13, you would have just thought I was a little girl because my parents let me grow my hair out a bit and I acted and talked and walked like a girl. 
Um, but then at the age of 12 or 13, I made a decision that was very conscious that I couldn't go on with all the bullying. I was getting beat up by kids at school. And uh, so I made a kind of conscious choice to try as best I could to um, present myself as male because that was what everybody was saying I was. So that's what I did. And after awakening, I think I really got to a point where I had the courage to really acknowledge to myself, first of all, that I was indeed transgender and that living out that identity was kind of my karma, my, my, my destiny, you could say. And I felt that it was uh, appropriate for me, even though it was later in life, uh, I decided it was appropriate for me to finally act on that. And um, that's what I've done. And I think for me, it fits into the whole concept of full circle awakening because my teaching, which I would say is kind of my signature teaching um, with students and how I guide people, is based on the idea that we first wake up from a kind of place of, of, of maybe over-identification with the personal, with the ordinary human sort of element of who we are, and we have no idea at all of the transcendent dimension of who we are, and that as we wake up into transcendence and realize that at the core of our being is spirit or pure consciousness, um, then as we develop and as that awakening unfolds and reveals itself more and more to us, we come to realize that spirit wants to express through our particular human form. And in my case, that means a transgender person. Can so I, uh, I, can I yeah, uh, follow up and, and interrupt a second? Sure. Uh, just sure. uh, for the sake of our <clears throat> listeners, and well, my own curiosity as well, you, uh, you made a decision as an adolescent or pubescent child to uh, identify as male. And then uh, in your telling of it, uh, you skip to later in life. I'm curious about um, the decision you made to uh, become a monastic uh -huh. and to join the monastery. To what extent, if any, was that influenced by what must have been a, 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 an inner conflict over your identity? I'm sure that there probably was some influence in that regard, but I think my primary motivation was that I was really passionately seeking spiritually mm -hmm. and felt really called to live a spiritually centered life. Um, I no longer really believe that anything we do is somehow absolutely pure in its motivation. <laughs> so yeah. I think there's always all kinds of different factors that go into any kind of decision-making from what kind of ice cream we like to who we marry. <laughs> so I don't think I could ever parse out how much of that was a kind of escape mechanism, because in some ways the monastic state is a kind of gender-neutral zone, you might mm -hmm. say. They're celibate. <clears throat> There's not a lot of the typical masculine sort of uh, activities and things going on. Um, and I think there was certainly an element of that in it. But I, I, my own sense, if I look sincerely in my heart, I would say that wasn't the primary motivation mm -hmm. for my monastic vocation. Mm -hmm. uh, Francis, I, I wanted to ask, uh, I grew up Catholic. Why do you think the Catholic Church is so intolerant of um, homosexuality, transgender, anything 
that doesn't fit the, the, the norm because, you know, I, I've met so many nice people in the church, including uh, priests, nuns, uh, 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 trappists, uh, like you are, monastics, <clears throat> and individually, they seem so open uh, in, in general, uh, especially the newer generation, but collectively so closed and so uh, uptight and, and intolerant. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Well, again, the same with institutions as one finds with individuals. I think there's all kinds of factors that play into that kind of an attitude. Um, I think one particularly important fact that many people are not really aware of because they're not aware of the theology that underpins Catholic um, moral teaching and so on is the whole idea about human sexuality being primarily something that is for the purposes of procreation. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a real underpinning of that teaching that's behind the whole birth control controversy and all that. And if they suddenly just said that people um, can, can just marry and that that there's no really factor of procreation involved at all, I think they would feel that that was compromising a, a basic sort of teaching um, but I think you, what you would find also, I know many, many, many Catholic priests, sisters, lay people, bishops even, um, and I would say a large percentage of the Catholic clergy especially, but everybody down the line from the Pope to the person in the pew, a lot of them have very liberal and open-minded ideas. The church as an institution right. has fairly narrow ideas about moral theology and so on. But I think if you take, uh, especially priests, I think most priests that I know, and I know a number, are pretty open to LGBT people in their ministry and um, are not at all judgmental. And I think you've, you've got to separate out the official Catholic line of you know, the magisterium, the teaching uh, hand of the church, and the actual members who are functioning right. in the world as Catholics, and I think there's a divide there mm-hmm. that's becoming more and more apparent, especially in the U.S., I would say. Mm. Uh, Francis, let's get back to the subject of non-duality. Um, it's a, a term used very often these days, and there's a, what you could even identify as a sort of non-dual uh, movement or a uh, sure. sort of new spiritual uh, kind of jargon around the term non-dual. Um, but the very term itself is not <laughs> not as easily uh, defined as, or, or I should say there's there's disagreement even about what the term itself means, or certainly oh, in practice. How do you define non-duality? or non-dualism? I define non-duality as the way you could literally translate it, which would be not two-ness. That in other words, life is one whole reality that includes everything and excludes nothing. Um, And I think the realization of that uh, brings us to a very integrated, open-hearted embrace of all of life and all its aspects. Um, in the absolute sense of pure consciousness, spirit, or God, if you will, and in the most personal sense of a personality, of a name and a form that a person takes. I don't think those things are two. I think they're one. I I think what's often presented as non-duality 
is actually quite dual, uh, quite Manichaean, you almost might say, to kind of grab a, an early church heresy. Uh, Manichaeanism was a, was a heresy that claimed that only spirit was real and matter was not really real at all. And I think a lot of the Neo-Advaita kind of um, approach to things is really mirroring that same viewpoint that only spirit, only pure consciousness, only the absolute reality is real. And all the phenomenal world of people and mountains and trees and giraffes and rocks and dogs and cats and ants is not real. And I think that's a confusion, actually. I, my own sense is that, yes, God or spirit or pure consciousness is absolutely real in the sense that it's unchanging, it's immutable, it's eternal, um, all that. But um, it's manifesting itself in all these forms, which are relatively real. They're real for a particular time, <clears throat> and then they pass away. So they arise and pass away. But really, in reality, they themselves are a manifestation of spirit. So I would say that non-duality is the uh, kind of intuitive recognition that that's true, that there's really no division in life. Right. Uh, Francis, that uh, to me was a very good explanation about non, uh, of non-duality. I don't know if everybody would agree, but it's something I've really tried to wrap my head around, understanding non-duality, uh, or at least people's, uh, uh, when they speak about it, uh, or their perceptions of it. Now, uh, so what you're basically saying, as I understand it, is the, rea- the ultimate reality is, is, is non-dual, but we, live in, we have to live in a, in a, in a dualistic world, where there's good and bad, uh, there's, there's not, everybody, not everyone and everything is one, but on a deeper level, and I think you used the word, we intuit, that uh, somehow in a, in a, on a much deeper level, this is all united, uh, we're all part of, uh, one, uh, there's a oneness. But uh, in terms of our daily functioning, there is duality, and that can't be denied. W- would you agree with that? or? Well, I think I would say it a little bit differently. Okay. I think that there is certainly individuality. I mm-hmm. don't know if I'd say duality. Individuality is really um, just the fact that there are individual forms, there are individual people, there are various objects that appear and disappear in the phenomenal world, but yet they are not separate from one another. It's a lot like an example that I often use is the fingers of a hand, that the fingers on your hand are definitely individuals. There's a difference between an index finger and a ring finger or a middle finger and a thumb. And yet, are they really separate? No, they're not separate, right. and yet they're individual. Well, let, let me so follow up on. Those, yeah, let me follow up on that. Yeah, what, are, are there non-dual teachers that don't say it like that? I mean, that, that makes perfect sense to me. So you have indi- individuality, and, and each individual part is part of a whole. Uh, I, I think that if, if we use the analogy of the hand, but uh, I've, I've also heard non-dual teachers really just completely focus and emphasize this. This uh, this oneness and that all all duality is illusion, uh, is Maya, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So uh, maybe I'm getting caught up in 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 in, in terminology. I think but, that there's no. I think there's a truth there that all duality is not absolutely real. Mm-hmm. It's an appearance that for now is appearing, and that there is a kind of individuality on a temporary basis. Mm-hmm. But I think to dismiss it all and say, you know, you, ha- you must use, for example, 
all kind of non-dual language. A lot of people won't even say me or my, they'll say here. Here there is an understanding that blah, 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 instead of I understand. <laughs> but even here, even here is localized. Right. Yeah, it's localized. I don't think you can avoid the fact that there is a world with individual forms in it. I mean, you can kind of, you can kind of put on top of that any kind of philosophical uh, structure you want, but the reality is in day-to-day life, if I, if I hit my finger with a hammer, I scream out in pain, you don't. That's you right. right. That's right. And I think there's a kind of common sense <clears throat> factor here that's often forgotten mm-hmm. in the name of a kind of abstract sort of take or, or embrace of quote-unquote non-duality, which I think in some ways is just, you know, just kind of in denial of basic, ordinary, everyday reality, which I don't think we can really deny without kind of bad consequences, uh-huh. frankly. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've always understood it uh, in a similar way, but <clears throat> I will add to it, um, it would seem my understanding of, of non-duality or Advaita Vedanta is that um, the world of form and change and uh, individuality um, isn't completely real in the capital R sense because it's right. it's not all there is. That all of this right. all of this is also divine and pure spirit and absolute manifestations yeah. of it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, it, you can sum it up very neatly and nicely and concisely in the little aphorism that was um, uh, come up with by um, from Adi Shankara, the founder of Advaita Vedanta. And he said, number one, uh, the world is illusion. Number two, only Brahman is real. Three, the world is Brahman. That's right. And I think right. that that reflects the full circle awakening that I'm trying to point to mm-hmm. and that I've experienced in my own life. And I think that's a more integrated, whole vision of awakening. It's not simply about awakening up and out of the phenomenal into the absolute. It's about waking up and out of the phenomenal into the absolute and then bringing the absolute back into the phenomenal world and manifesting it in ordinary everyday human mm-hmm. life in which, which whatever way we each do uniquely, you know, the way we do. Francis, uh, tell us about Full Circle and what spiritual teachings uh, you bring to people. Yeah, I would say if I had to kind of... Um, identify a signature teaching of mine, it would be this full circle awakening, which is really a kind of map of consciousness that, as I just said, um, emphasizes that there's a transcendent dimension, there's a transcendent side to waking up, and then there's an imminent side where the transcendent seems to have a movement of wanting to embody itself in ordinary human expression in this case, or in the case of a giraffe, a giraffe expression, or in the case of a dog, a dog expression, and so on. That that's the way life sort of wants to flow. Like Shankara said, the world is illusion ultimately. Only Brahman, only the absolute, only the transcendent is real in any ultimate sense. But the world is Brahman. The world is also a manifestation of the formless taking form. That's how I would, if I had to describe very simply my concept of full circle awakening, that's how I would maybe simply describe it. Now, we've been speaking in sort of abstract terms, 
<clears throat> excuse me, but the um, these shifts in understanding, these nuances, have practical consequences. And um, you know, you have been at the heart of of some debates. I've you know on Facebook, I have too, um, where the practical consequences of how you understand non-duality uh, yeah. have been debated. Go, please. You know, Say a few words about that. Well, the way I would characterize it, probably because of my background, I have degrees in philosophy, but the way I would characterize a lot of the kind of pop non-duality that you see in the neo-advaita scene, especially on social media and on the internet and so on, is really um, essentially a nihilistic philosophy because it's saying that the phenomenal world doesn't even exist on, on any level at all, that it's absolutely pure delusion and that um that it that, and therefore if you follow that out to its logical end it would lead us into a, a space of quite um a kind kind of irresponsible space i would i would imagine that we would feel like well none of it's real anyway so why should i bother trying to do anything to help world hunger or to solve problems like aids and war and and you know uh persecution of religious minorities or oppression of women or you know any of those things if all of it's just a big dream and completely unreal then why should we even address those things we'll just wake up from the dream one day and it'll all be fine you know but i don't think that's a really balanced understanding my own sense is that the the world as a dream is a kind of analogy that it does have a lot of dreamlike qualities in the sense that it's fleeting, ephemeral, it's arising and ceasing, you know, one day it's here, the next day it's gone. In that sense, it's very dreamlike. But that's not to say that it doesn't exist on a temporary basis, and that it's not important for us to address as a, as a, as a value, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my own, you know, I just, I just posted something, it's an old story of mine, it's a personal story, about uh, Charlotte Joko Beck, who was a teacher of mine, mm. and I, w- I went to a retreat once with Joko. A Zen teacher, we I, should say. Yes, yeah, she's a very she was a beautiful Zen teacher mm-hmm. that I worked with for for several years. And on one of her retreats, I went in and had a little uh, interview with her, and I said, Charlotte or uh, Joko, she didn't go by Charlotte, she went by Joko. And I said, you know, I've really felt that I have this big insight into no self into emptiness. It's really clear to me. And then I went on to expound, of course, because I was a philosophy person. So I went on to expound, you know, a great length to what I meant by it and so on. And she sort of listened very patiently and smiled and nodded her head. And then at one point, uh, she just looked up and just said to me, aren't you a cook in your monastic community? And I thought, well, what's that got to do with And I said, Yes, I am a cook in the monastic community. And then, and then she lowered her glasses and gave you this, she had these little kind of half reading glasses. And she lowered them and looked over them with her big blue eyes into my face. And she said, well, the real question then is, how clean is your oven right now? Uh-huh. <laughs> Chop wood and carry water, right, Francis. Right. Yeah. But, uh, Francis, in, in other words, yeah. if you haven't, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, in other words, if you have an insight that's so deep into no self, into the ultimate emptiness mm-hmm. that's at the core of everything, then how are you living your life? It, you know, are you living your life in a responsible, helpful way that's addressing issues like whether or not the oven's clean? 
just these mundane things. But she was what she was basically pointing to was that's the real test. If you get sunyata, if you get emptiness, if you get no self, the real test is how are you living your life? Mm. Are you living your life in love, compassion, joy, wisdom, peace? Are you helping or are you hurting? You know, it's not it's, if, if we really see emptiness, we're not going to just dismiss the world. We're going to actually embrace the world even more fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis, in your own life, what uh, amount of time do you uh, devote to spiritual practice in any given day? And what spiritual practices, if any, do you participate in on a daily basis? Well, I still do a lot of compassion practices. I still do meta which is a loving-kindness meditation, uh, radiating out loving-kindness mm-hmm. into the world to all beings, ultimately. And I also do a Tibetan Buddhist practice <clears throat> known as Tonglen, which is uh, taking and giving. So you breathe in the pain and the suffering of others, and you breathe out a kind of comfort. And I practice those every day, and I also teach those. And then each morning, I also feel very drawn into a kind of samadhi where I sit for several hours, I don't know if I'd even call it formal meditation because it's not really like when I was doing formal meditation practice. It's more of just a kind of call of love that I feel Mm -hmm. very drawn into this space that's very much like the space of contemplative prayer that I knew as a monastic. And I would say those are my primary spiritual practices. But also, you know, that famous quote by the Dalai Lama, I love that, he said, you know, my religion is kindness. I, uh-huh. I think that my sense is that living as a, living kindness is really goes a long way toward bringing us into a greater clarity and awakening. If we just try consistently to to be kind in our response to people, that's nothing to sneeze at, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And a and a powerful spiritual practice, I would think, um, Francis. Absolutely. You didn't. How does your uh, original uh, commitment to the Christian uh, tradition and uh, how does that play into your spiritual life now? I would say Jesus is still a kind of archetype and symbol for me of the self, of the awakened Christ nature or Buddha nature that's within all of us. I certainly don't hold anymore to a traditional Christology or theology. I don't, my sense is that theology at its best is a kind of pointer to the mystery that we call God, um, but it really can't really box in that mystery or define it in any definitive kind of way. So I would say I'm a Christian in spirit, and I still, Jesus is a very important sort of symbol for me, an archetype, um, but I probably don't fit into much traditional, I mean, the only kind of Christian church I would fit into at this point would be a very, very, very little one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, Francis, uh, I had a, uh, one final question from you from my side, and that is, uh, there are probably people listening into this interview uh, that are uh, tra- transgender or considering, or, or confused about maybe uh, their gender, and may, or maybe they're a male and they've decided they're really a, a female. And what advice do you have uh, for those people having gone through all this yourself? I would say it would probably be an important thing for them to get into some therapy mm-hmm. with a therapist that's LGBT friendly mm-hmm. and can kind of assist them in 
um, coming to terms with all that and figuring it out and figuring out what their response is going to be. Um, I think that therapy can be indispensable to anybody on a spiritual journey, but especially somebody struggling with an issue like gender identity. I think it would really be helpful to unpack all that with a qualified therapist who could really help you get to the heart of what's going on inside of you mm-hmm. around those issues. And, and speaking of that, my final question, I want to return to your own transition. Um, you became known on the spiritual scene as somebody who had experienced a profound awakening to the uh, reality, the ultimate reality of the, the self that transcends ego and personality and uh, identity kind of considerations like even gender. So when you transition and it comes across as a kind of celebration of uh, coming into uh, what you always knew you were, uh, how when people who looked upon you as somebody who had transcended such uh, individual considerations and ego considerations. Um, what was the reaction from people? Did, was it were they yeah, confused I, by why you would even care about such things? Yeah, I, I think I think some people were, but I think that confusion arises out of a misunderstanding of what transcendence really is all about. Mm-hmm. Because transcendence, while it's a normal ordinary part of the spiritual journey and of awakening, we transcend and then include. We don't transcend and annihilate what came before. We just see beyond it and then include it from a a wider, larger perspective. So, you know, even all those people who would say that, like I, I get many people on social media and even messages on my website that people criticizing me and saying, well, you know, I don't have any gender. I've transcended name and form, and I don't have any gender. And my answer to that, one guy did that, one kind of 56-year-old sort of overweight, bald guy uh, (laughs) uh, said that. And I said, okay, well, that's fine, Ron. Then why don't you next week, since gender doesn't mean anything to you, next week get a pair of high heels, put some makeup on, get a wig, and uh-huh. just go through your life as a woman for a week and just see how that is. It doesn't matter to you. You've transcended it. So that shouldn't bother you, you know. And if you can honestly say that I don't want to do that, I can't do that, that's abhorrent to think about me doing, well, then maybe you haven't transcended gender quite as much as you think you have, <laughs> you know. Great, I think great we can point. transcend it and realize we can realize that we're not limited to our gender, but that doesn't mean that we don't still as a human being have a gender identity that we feel compelled to express in the world. Of course we do. We all do. Just as we, we may transcend uh, notions like uh, individuality and family and attachments and all those things we, we uh, downgrade, but um, you're still going to love your family and you're still going to behave like a responsible father, one hopes and mother and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Especially after awakening, it goes back to Joko's little thing. How clean is your oven right now? That's yeah. the real question. Mm-hmm. You know, you can transcend all you want, but if you cheat on your taxes and don't treat your employees well and lie and, and, and harm others, well, then your awakening maybe leaves something to be desired. Yes. Uh, like somebody uh, else I interviewed once said, uh, you may be in a non-dual state, but you'll make a separation between which side of the road to drive on. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well put, well put. Francis, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on today, back on the show, and I hope to have you back on again and uh, wish you great success in your spiritual journey and your teaching of others. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be back. Well, it was good to have you back, Francis, and we wish you the best, and um, we'll stay in touch. All right. Thanks so much.